0: Well, it is great to be back. I've really missed being here. Boy, especially Tim. Man, thanks. It oh, was great this morning. Great for me. Uh, you know, this is a great time of year actually to add to your family. If you haven't been thinking about that, you can adopt an Aggie. Um, it's easier than having your own. So <laughs> sign up and, and get a student. It works both ways. Students are, are great for your family. They bring a lot of joy and enthusiasm in life as you see how they... Uh, love the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, it's a great benefit for them as well. We need families not that are perfect, but families who are just walking with the Lord and trying to walk with the Lord so students can come in. A lot of our students come from broken homes or homes that uh, don't believe in Jesus Christ, and they need to see how does a Christian home function. So this is a great opportunity, win-win, works both ways. Uh, You can sign up in the foyer or you can sign up uh, online, that works as well. This morning, though, we're going to be in the book of Joshua. We're going to start in Joshua chapter 5 and verse 13. Now, I assume there are a few of you who are around who still remember uh, Harrison Neva Pool. Anybody remember Harrison Neva? Okay, last night it was amazing. Hardly anyone remembered Harrison Neva Pool. I've been around this church for a few years. Uh, about 30, actually. And so I remember Harrison Neva really well. I was a college student when Harrison Neva moved to town. They came from Africa. They were, they were uh, missionaries in Africa for over 30 years. And they came to College Station to retire but they didn't retire at all. They bought a house here, and then they began to work tirelessly with international students. They had international students in their home constantly. When they would come in off of the plane and had no place to stay, they could live with Harrison Neva until they found a place to stay. And Harrison Neva were one of the the first families who really started getting that international student furniture giveaway that we had yesterday that really helped start getting that going, bringing furniture so international students could uh, be housed and have their apartments filled up and not vacant and empty and bare and really feel like home. And they fed them and they shared Jesus Christ with them and they discipled them and had Bible studies with them. And they worked and they worked and they worked. And that was retirement for them. And so finally they decided uh, that they would go to Florida. Their their mission agency had a retirement community in Florida. So they went down to Florida and then they did the same thing in Florida for several years. And uh, Harris, he uh, eventually he passed away of cancer, but Neva kept... Working with people, and she she'd say, you know, I'm going to go. I have to go do my Bible study with the old people. She was about 80 at the time, and she would go (laughs) do her Bible study in the nursing homes, and she would share the gospel with all of her neighbors, and she kept doing that her entire life. And I I I watched that, and I thought, that's who I want to be. Those two were heroes of the faith for me. That's how I want to live. I don't want to just kind of go, and then life's over. I'm going like this, and I'm working, working, working. Then I gone, and hi Jesus, (laughs) I'm ready. That's how I want to live my life. So in the Bible, two of my favorite characters are Joshua and Caleb. This morning we're going to look at Joshua in particular. But you know, Joshua received his uh, most challenging life's calling at the age of 80. At 80 years old, he was told by God, I want you to lead my people into the promised land. Moses is dead, now the job is yours. And you know, Joshua was afraid. At age 80, after all that he had seen, he had seen the Red Sea parted, he had seen manna in the wilderness, and he would seen quail, he would seen all of these wonderful, miraculous provisions from God, and seen God's power, but when he received this calling to lead God's people, he was afraid. Three times in his commissioning, God has to say, in a very short period of time, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Joshua, just be strong and courageous. Only be strong and courageous. Joshua, don't be afraid. But I think that's why God picked him, because even though he was afraid, he still stepped out in faith. His fear didn't paralyze him. It caused him to depend more deeply upon God. And so if you look at the life of Joshua, you certainly see a man who is a military genius, He had to take a group of people who were really not an army at all. They weren't well trained. They had just wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They were not well equipped. And they had to go into a very difficult land, a rough land, and face a larger and better equipped enemy. And they won. There are journal articles written about Joshua's military genius. But I think the essence of Joshua's life, though, was that he was a spiritual giant. He was a man who depended completely and deeply on the Lord. And so what I want us to look at this morning are some of the spiritual lessons that we learn from Joshua, specifically these lessons of spiritual conquest. And I want us to start reading together in chapter 5 and verse 13. It says, Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? The man said, No. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the army of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Joshua, this is going to be a worship service. Take off your shoes because where you're standing is holy ground. I love this brief interaction because Joshua is out on his own and he's gone out away from the camp to meditate and think and pray and he's lifted up his eyes to the stars and he looks across and he sees a soldier, a really spooky soldier, and he's standing there with his sword drawn and he's ready to fight and Joshua gets ready. He's like, whose side are you on? Are you on... Our side or the enemy? And the man says, you're asking the wrong question. I'm on God's side. And I command his armies. Will you allow me to lead you into battle or will you try to fight on your own? And Joshua is going to have to learn this lesson early on, that the battle is the Lord's. And if you watch this battle in Jericho, you're going to learn that God is teaching the Israelites that he will fight for them, that this battle must be waged through supernatural means. It looks all natural. There's clashing of swords and falling of walls and all sorts of things like that. But ultimately, it's a spiritual battle. It's going to be waged by spiritual means. Look with me again. Chapter 6 now, verse 1. Says now Jericho was tightly shut, because of the sons of Israel. No one went out, and no one came in. The people of Jericho had heard that they were coming, and so they shut up the city. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, with its king and its valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also the priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns. Before the ark. Then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. Now it's a subtle thing to notice here, but the horn that they're blowing is a ram's horn. It's not the silver trumpet. The silver trumpet was the one that was normally used to call the people into assembly and to get them ready for war. Instead, he's using the ram's horn, which was the horn that was used to call people to worship. He doesn't use the war horn, he uses the worship horn. Because this is going to be a worship service. And so he's calling the people, and they think they're going into war, but really it's going to be an, an effort of worship which will knock down the walls of Jericho. In other words, the people would not knock down these walls because they were better equipped or they had better machinery or they had great catapults or battering rams or anything like that. They're going to do it through faith. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us, the walls of Jericho fell through faith, not through force. The walls of Jericho fell because the people believed. All of life is a spiritual exercise. And I think that we miss that. We go through the daily motions of, of work and family and school and our relationships. And we totally miss that all of this is happening in a spiritual dimension. That the challenges that we are facing at work have a spiritual foundation, that God is trying to do something spiritual that is more important than what we accomplish at work. The conflicts and challenges we're having at home, they're spiritual. All of life is spiritual. We are physical beings, but we're also spiritual beings. We're beings who are designed to be completely in touch and completely in communion with the Spirit of God. And so that as we're walking with God, we're seeing what the Spirit of God is doing all around us. But we get so busy in the day-to-day activities of our lives that we forget that all of life is spiritual. All of life is spiritual. Remember when I was in grade school, I think it was fourth grade, I was getting picked on by a bully. An interesting thing about this bully is he was smaller than me. And uh, he was even skinnier than me, but he was in my head. You know, <laughs> That's what a bully does. Right? He's in my head. And, and I was totally intimidated. And I was really afraid of this. I remember talking to my dad. My dad probably doesn't remember this. But I remember talking to my dad about this bully and my dad was giving me advice. And I, even as a fourth grader, I remember vividly, even to this day, because you know how bullies kind of imprints on your mind. And you never forget. Well, I still remember to this day that I didn't want any advice. What I wanted was very clear in my mind. I wanted my dad to come down to school and beat him up. Right? You know, right there on the playground, just thrash him for me, do the job for me. Well, you know, that's what God is going to do for the Israelites. In this first battle, subsequent battles will be waged a little bit differently but in this first battle God is going to try to prove to them that that I am the warrior I'm the one battling for you the captain of my army he is going in front of you I'm going in front of you this is my land I'm going to give you my land I will work on your behalf but they have to learn this lesson and so God has them wage warfare here in a really strange way what do they do? they walk around the city They walk around the city. Look at me again, chapter 6 and verse 3. It says, You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. What I observe here is that human effort actually seems counterproductive. In this particular battle, Uh, here's your job. I want you to walk around the city. It's about a mile. Every day, I just want you to walk around the city, but don't say anything. (laughs) Just walk. And can you imagine as they're walking, and these Canaanites from Jericho are looking down over the city wall, how confused they were initially, you know, day one. Day two, a little more curious, but. Now they're kind of thinking this is ridiculous, stupid. Start to you know maybe throw things at them, hurl insults at them. <laughs> Idiots! They just walking around the city. And they won't respond. They won't do anything. They just keep walking around the city. And it's not as if the walls just start kind of gradually crumbling because they're walking so heavy. You know, it's not like whoa! Did you feel that? No, nothing physical, tangible is happening at all. Nothing is happening. All they're doing is wa- wandering just wondering, Can you imagine how difficult it was for this generation to keep quiet? Remember, This is a generation that was raised by parents who only knew how to grumble and complain and whine and moan, right? That's why they died in the wilderness. Because all you do is complain. And that's your parents. That's all you've got in your whole life. And now Joshua says, just walk around the city. Trust me. He didn't tell them the whole story. I'm not sure Joshua knew the whole story yet. You know, after day three, hey, what, what are we doing? Shh, dash, said, Don't talk. This is ridiculous. Shh, don't talk. Seventh day, what do they do? They walk around the city seven times. It's about a mile circumference. So they walk for seven miles in the heat of the day. That's pretty tiring. Let me put this in modern terms how this must have felt. When you go to the grocery store and your basket is full, you're done, right? You're ready to go check out. You're moving toward the checkout aisles, right? You're moving toward the checkout aisles and you probably do a quick scan, see is there any competition. Because if there's no competition, then you can make a, a pretty quick survey. You might be able to pass by once and see you know, who has the most baskets. And not just who has the most baskets, but you've got to calculate, too, who has the most stuff in their baskets. There might be three baskets here, but there's not much stuff in it, so you can get in the one with two, and you could go a little faster. And so you make this quick calculation. You jump in. And, you know, if things aren't moving properly, you know, you've got a trainee over here. You might end up jumping lines. But you're moving to the fastest line to get out to win. Right? You've got to win this deal. So imagine you found the shortest line. And there you are with your stuff. And you're in the shortest line. And it's moving forward. And you're about to, about to put your stuff onto the belt. And God says, move back to the longest line. Really? Okay? So you get out of line, and you move to the longest line, and somebody goes, yeah, fool. You know, yeah, and there, man, they take your spot. And there you are, you're at the back of the line, and you're moving up, and it's about time to put your stuff on the belt, and God says, move back to the longest line. Really? Okay. What are you doing here, God? And so you move to the longest line again, and somebody jumps in, and you know, you do that for six days. Oh, wow. Wow. Seventh day, you do it all day long. <laughs> you know, manager scratching and say, "What in the world, man? How did it feel?" Seven miles they walk ar- ar- around the city. I-, I would think that'd be counterproductive. For one thing, all of your warriors now are exhausted. They've just been walking for seven miles in the heat of the desert. But that was exactly God's intention to absolutely wear them out physically and emotionally and spiritually to break them to prove that the victory would be his not theirs you're just going to shout and the walls will fall down great story written by watchman nee he was a very famous chinese evangelist and church planter he wrote a book called the normal christian life and in it he tells a story about when he was a young christian he was walking along a river and he saw a man who had fallen in, and he was drowning, and there was a man standing by the side of the river who was a very strong swimmer, and he was doing nothing. He was just standing and watching this man drown. The man was going under, and then he'd come up, and he'd cry, and he'd flail, and he'd say, help me, help me, save me, I'm drowning. He'd go under again, and he was going under time after time and watchman and he said, why don't you save him? You know how to swim. The man said nothing. He just stood there watching man kept going under and he was getting weaker and weaker and you could see that he was about to drown. Finally, he went down that final time and it was obvious he's not coming up again. And then that strong swimmer jumped into the water and pulled him to the shore. And he explained to Watchman Nee, he said, if I had gone in earlier, he would have drowned both of us because he was still trying to save himself. I had to wait until the point when he was broken and then I could rescue him. And we're battling and battling and battling in the spiritual life Because we're not crying out and saying, God, I can do nothing. There's a wall that must be knocked down in my life and I cannot. I cannot. Will you? Are you on my side? And God said, no, I'm over here on my side. Are you with me? I'm the captain. Will you follow me? Walk around that wall. But why? Just start walking. Trust me. Go my way. Man, that's hard to do. A few years ago, I read a commentary on Joshua's short one by a guy named Paul Toms, and he wrote this. He said, there's a final lesson in the conquest of Jericho. The real battle about which we are reading is not with the Canaanites at all. It is with God's own people. All this blowing of trumpets, all this numerical listing of sevens were not really necessary to knock down a little wall. God was not frantically collecting his energy so that he could destroy Jericho. He could have just spoken, and Jericho would have vaporized. The real battle of Jericho was with the human heart, not with the wall of a city. God was seeking to overcome the Israelites rather than simply to overcome the Canaanites. And so he was setting a pattern at Jericho to teach them how to do warfare, Blow the trumpet and shout and the wall is going to fall down. Then you go in and you participate. And that's exactly what happened. And they learned a lesson. Okay? The pattern is set. Now we know how to wage warfare with God, right? Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Israel was told to go in and destroy absolutely in Jericho. Burn the city. Don't take any of the gold or silver or cattle anything. Just destroy all of it. It's under the ban. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai. That's the next city up on the ridge, which is near beth east of Bethel, And he said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up. Only about two or three thousand men need go up to Ai. Do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. We've got it under control. we got it. We can handle it. So about three thousand men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about thirty-six of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent, so the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Second principle of spiritual warfare is that it is repulsed by presumption. And unfortunately, that's what often happens to us. We make a step forward spiritually, and we think we got it under control. So we take it back over again immediately, and we become presumptuous. Okay? And that's exactly what happened to these people one man in particular, Achan, was deceived by sin. He was presumptuous about the holiness of the Lord. Luke chapter 7, verse 19. What's happened here is that his tribe and family have been taken by Lot, and then he in particular has been identified as the one who has taken something that was under the ban. Chapter 7, verse 19. Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel. Give praise to him. Tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. Then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. He thought to himself, why why waste this stuff? Man, we got silver and gold here. What was he thinking? The, The essence of sin and the way that it deceives us is that we're tricked into thinking that God is withholding something from us. God is withholding the best, and we know better. No, it would be better not to burn that gold and silver. In fact, God, it would be better if I had had it for me, for myself, for my family. God, it's not the best for you to hold that back from me. This is the sin of the garden, Right? God brings Adam and Eve into the garden. He says, you can eat from any tree in the garden. Matter of fact, you can eat from that tree and that tree and that tree and that grove of 20 over there and the, the thousand trees behind that. You can have that and you can have that. Oh, and I forgot the ones behind me here. You can have all these and you can have this tree and this tree and all of these plants over here. You can have those. Oh, and those plants, they're really good. I spent a lot of time making those. You'll like that. And this is, oh, and yeah, and then eat, but what I really eat, eat, eat freely. Just eat and enjoy yourself. This is your garden. Enjoy it. Everything. Enjoy everything in this garden. Oh, but just not that one. So, which one did they want? <laughs> you got the whole garden, but man, that's the way temptation works. Man, that's got to be the best one. That's, God's got to be holding something back from me. And so, that one thing out of all of the garden that God had given became consuming. Got to have it. Maybe that's how sin works. God must be withholding something from me. If you look over at chapter 8, verse 1, notice when they actually repent and get everything cleaned out, they go up and they conquer the city of Ai. In chapter 8, notice what God says to them. The Lord said, Do not fear or be dismayed. Now take the people of war with you. Arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given this city into your hand. The king... His people, his city, his land, you shall do to I and its king just as you did to Jericho and its king. But you shall take only its spoil and its cattle as plunder for yourselves. Set up an ambush for the city. Do you see the point? In the next city, he had already planned on giving them everything. He said, Jericho, wipe out everything. But he didn't tell them at the next city you're going to get everything. He didn't tell them that because he wanted them to trust him that what he knew was best. He had already planned to give them the gold and the silver and the cattle. Just not at this city, at this city. But when we're deceived by sin, we believe that God is holding something back from us. And so we reach out and take it. And because we're deceived, we think, God can't see. The door is closed, the lights are off, nobody knows. But God sees. God sees. And so what does he do with the gold and the silver? He goes into his tent with his family, his children, and he says, Quick, dig a hole. No, dig it a little deeper so God won't see. (laughs) Another six inches, and we got it covered. And then put put the carpet on top. And no one will know. God won't see. Jeremiah 23, God says, Am I a God who does not see? My eyes search to and fro, I see absolutely everything. It says in Hebrews, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. It doesn't matter if it's dark or light or hidden deeply in our hearts. It's just as if it's laying right out there in the open. But when we're deceived by sin, we think we can hide something from God and get away with it. He was able to hide it from the other folks around him, from his neighbors and the other tribes, but not from God, because God sees. God sees all. You ever seen how you um, catch a monkey, monkey trap? You ever seen this before? I couldn't find a, a, an actual picture, but I, did, I found a cartoon for you, which illustrates the point just as well. You find a jar that a monkey's hand will just fit through, and then uh, you can put fruit in there, or usually even just something shiny, you know, a marble or a coin or whatever, and the monkey reaches in and grabs it, makes a fist, and once the fist is made, can't get can't get it back out. It will die trapped. It will be captured rather than release the banana or the marble or the penny. It won't release. It works with people too. (laughs) Caught in the cookie jar. Just let it go and run. Interesting play on words here in uh, 6 through 8 or 7 and 8 actually. It says uh, that, that Achan... Took these things. Okay? He, he reached out and he captured them. And then later on, in the same verb, it says, Then Achan was taken. Okay? And all that gold and silver was taken out of his tent. Okay? We think that we are taking, but then sin takes us and it traps us and it destroys us. And spiritual conquest is pushed back, it's repulsed because we're presumptuous. Think God doesn't see. God doesn't know. But it wasn't just uh, Achan. No one among the sons of Israel sought God's direction at all. Look at chapter 7 again, verse 2. Just hear their, their attitude toward this next battle. It says, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and they spied out Ai. Then they returned to Joshua and said to him, Don't let all the people go up. Only about two or 3,000 men need to go up to Ai. don't make everyone toil to get up there it's up a ridge it's we only need a few because this is a much easier battle than what happened at Jericho <laughs> really how would you know you didn't do anything at Jericho we've got it all figured out God and if they had just asked the Lord before they went to Ai, what should we do he would have said you've got a problem you need to clean up first in your camp don't go up don't fight the next battle The result? Everybody suffered. They sent a crew up there. Thirty-six men were killed. If you notice chapter 7, verse 11, God says, Israel has sinned. Israel has transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. They've even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Isn't that interesting? It was Achan who had taken these things, but God says, Israel has sinned. I think we forget frequently when we are members of the body of Christ and we sin, it affects those around us. It affects family members, it affects friends, it affects co-workers, it has these ripple effects that we don't contemplate ahead of time, but the whole community is affected. The whole community is halted from going into the promised land because of the sin of one. And so they've got to deal with this sin. They've got to deal with the sin. Third principle Spiritual conquest is revitalized by repentance. Chapter 7, verse 6. It says, Joshua tore his clothes, and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord. Until evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. They tore their clothes, and they, they humbled themselves before the Lord. And they didn't move, and they waited for God to speak. And then it says, Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan where there were no battles. And he's, he's kind of whining a little bit here. Oh Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why is it you have fallen on your face? Stop whining and take action. You need to repent. You need to repent. I'm going to give you four characteristics of repentance from this section. First of all, repentance is active. It says, Joshua, arise. Okay? Do not be paralyzed by this defeat. Which is what so happens, often happens to us spiritually when Satan... Hits a lick with us, we, we become paralyzed. He says, no, get up. Repent, and let's move on to the next battle. Hey, repentance is it's active. Second of all, repentance is aggressive. In chapter 7, and verse 11. Israel has sinned. They have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. They have taken the things that were under the man. They have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies. Because the battle is spiritual, right? It's not merely physical. It's not about having a bigger army or better equipment. They become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, has said... There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. In the morning, then, you shall come near by your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families. The family which the Lord takes shall come near by households. The household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And it shall be that the one who has taken these things under the ban shall be burned with fire He and all that belongs to him because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. Wow. Does that make you feel a little uncomfortable? That's pretty severe, isn't it? Can I just give it back? Can we just start over? Seems awfully harsh. But that's because we do not have any intellectual or emotional capacity to conceive of how absolutely holy God is and how absolutely He hates sin. And when God is doing a, a new and a big thing in history, what happens is His justice often comes immediately. See that throughout the history of the Bible. Yeah, I wouldn't have wanted to be Uzzah who reached out and touched the ark. Boom. Give that job to somebody else. Or Ananias and Sapphira who just, they just held back a little bit. They just, just a little lie. You're gone. Boom, boom. Sometimes in history when God is doing a big thing, justice comes immediately. But it's not any more severe in the sense that God always hates sin this much. And the wages of sin is always death. It's a gift from God that we live in a period of time where God is holding back because he is longing for more and more and more to come to repentance through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why when those who crucified Christ on the cross were given an opportunity to repent rather than being destroyed immediately. Jesus didn't come out of the grave and say, you're dead. He said, believe. And he has called us in this time not to wage warfare like Joshua did. That's not our calling. Our calling is to follow the pattern of Jesus Christ. And boy, we're going to see that in the book of 1 Peter. And it's going to be hard to swallow. Suffer like Christ. Suffer. Don't revile in return. When you're hit for the sake of Christ, bless. Don't curse. Bless. I'll be the one to decide who gets judged and how much they get judged. Leave that to me. Forgive, 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 forgive. And we don't want to give it to others, but oh man, I'm so glad that I get it for me. Now is the time when God is saying to us as believers, follow the pattern of Christ so that many can come into relationship with me through Jesus Christ. Give them forgiveness freely because that's how I've given them forgiveness But as Christians, never forget, this is absolutely how much God hates sin. This is absolutely how much God hates sin. So if God has pointed out a sin in your life, big one, little one, get aggressive. Get really aggressive. Third characteristic is that the repentance is immediate. Verse 22, chapter 7. It says Joshua sent messengers and they ran to Achan's tent. They ran. Hold on a second, Joshua, I got I gotta get a drink of water, I gotta get a snack. I'm a little hungry. I gotta tend my little garden that I've started to grow at. I need to go kiss my wife. I need to... Boom. They went immediately. They immediately dealt with the situation. Remember when your parents used to tell you to clean up your room? How'd you do it? Oh, absolutely. Smile on your face. Let me, I cannot get to my room quick enough. Mom, yes, absolutely. Just run into your room and fold all the clothes perfectly and put them in. Oh, that's the shirt drawer. Sorry, got shirts and pants, and make that all clean, and, oh, you know, Mom, my window's a little bit smudgy. Where's the Windex? Should I vacuum? Look at these baseboards in my room. I, you know, I'm going to deal with this room situation, Mom. It's obvious we've got a problem here. Now, uh, what do you do? You just uh, you drag your feet, you go do this, you go do that, and when you finally get around to cleaning your room, you go, kick the clothes under the bed. It's done! And that's often how we repent. When God says it's time to clean up the room, let's clean up the room. We're starting a new semester. For me, this is the time of year when I step back and do more of my reevaluation, thinking about my year, because we live in college town. You know, it's less January 1 for me, more. This is more my serious time. God, what are you pointing out in my life? Do you know that God really wants to knock down huge walls in your life this semester? That's, that's his business. He always wants that. Always. He always wants to make spiritual progress. He would like to make huge spiritual progress in your life and in the life of this church this semester. That's what he's longing for. He doesn't want anything less He doesn't want half-hearted victories. He would love this church to rise up in in a really dramatic and radical way and walk with him closer than we've ever walked with him before and have a greater impact on the community and have marriages healed out in the community and people trusting Christ and growing in their faith and saying no to the idols of the world and yes to Jesus and giving him all. He would love to see that and nothing less. That's what he's longing for. Are we equally serious about that? And when we say yes, we set our minds to be that diligent and pursue it. To be vigilant in these efforts. Fourth characteristic repentance is vigilant. They do go up to the city of I, they conquer the city of I, and you know how they do it? They do exactly what God says. Man, they got the point. They do exactly what God says. And at the end of it, they have this great worship service and they call everybody together and they write the law out again and they say, okay, we're committed. We're right there. And then in chapter 9, if you know the book of Joshua well, what happens is the Gibeonites come to them and say, oh, we're from a really far off place. And they bring stale bread and their clothes are torn when really they're actually neighbors. And they trick the Israelites Look at chapter nine, verse fourteen. It says so. The men of Israel took some of their provisions, the Gibeonites' provisions, and they did not ask the counsel of the Lord. Ah, God. ah man. Ah, I read that and I go, "That's me." Right? I I, I hate to say it, but that's those are the cycles. That's why we need to be in fellowship and have community because we remind ourselves and remind one another, no, no, we must be eternally vigilant. Always ask God first. And Tristan and I have been wrestling through some some stuff at home in terms of how do we discipline our kids and the character we want to see formed in our kids. And I was really frustrated yesterday. And I was... uh, Walking out the door, frustrated, and uh, she's walking with me to the truck, comforting, and, and she, she said this really profound thing. She said, "You know, we probably need to pray more." It's like, oh yeah, or at all? Maybe we should just pray some. Yeah, you know, that's it. Let me seek the counsel of the Lord. Are you on our side or our adversary's side? No, I'm the captain. Of God's army, are you with me? Are you listening to me and taking orders from me? And do you long this semester and this year to see God knock down enormous walls in front of you? They only come down by faith. They do not come down by force. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would fill us with a spirit of wisdom. I pray that you'd fill us with a spirit of of diligence and vigilance to guard over our hearts and to day by day, every morning and moment by moment throughout each day come to you and seek your counsel. And when we hear it, that we would have the courage to follow hard after you. Father, I thank you for this brief reminder from the life of Joshua and I pray that you would make all of us men and women like Joshua. Father, I pray that you do great things through this entire church, through this body. I pray that we would end the semester and look back and say, wow, God really did move. He really did change. We saw his hand because we believed. Father, we thank you that you've drawn us into relationship with you through Jesus and we thank you that you've given us meaning and purpose through him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you, and if you want to get ahead, we're going to, read, we're going to study First Peter, so you can read through the whole book this week, start thinking about the book. First Peter. We'll see you next week.